Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 243 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about giants. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hey, Jimmy. They might be giants. Howdy, Dom. (laughs) So giants are a fascinating subject. They appear in folklore all over the world, and they're often portrayed as terrifying opponents, like the Philistine giant Goliath, who battled King David as a boy. So what are giants? How big can humans really get? And what's responsible for gigantism? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Now the Philistines have gathered their armies for battle, and Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountains on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountains on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. As David talked with his brothers, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And David said to King Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. 
This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took Goliath's sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled, and the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. That's a slightly condensed version of the story of David and Goliath. You can look it up in 1 Samuel 17 if you'd like to read the full version. And I wanted to use it to start today's program because it's the most famous giant story in our culture, but it's far from the only giant story in world literature. Let's begin by talking about the term giant. Where does it come from and what does it mean? The English term giant comes from the Greek word gigantes. Gigantes is the plural form of the word gigas. So in Greek, if you have more than one gigas, you have gigantes. While the term gigas sounds to me like a monster that Godzilla would fight, in actuality, the gigantes were basically the giants of Greek mythology, and we'll have more to say about them later. In English, the term giant refers to a creature that looks like a human being and may be a human being, but of unusually large size. The term giant is also used for other creatures. For example, in English, the animal that we normally think of as a panda is sometimes called a giant panda. Uh, this term is used to distinguish it from another creature, which is known as a red panda, because the giant panda is considerably larger than a red panda. So the term giant is sometimes used for things other than humans. Similarly, the word giant gets used for creatures in folklore that aren't entirely human. For example, in Greek folklore, the giants are sometimes depicted as having snakes for legs, which is really weird and would be awfully inconvenient for walking, but that's not the type of giant we're interested in today. Today, we'll be investigating giants that just look like human beings, so we're only dealing with human giants in this episode. Now let's talk about human or human-looking giants. What characteristics are they supposed to have other than just being big? That varies depending on the folklore that you're looking at. Uh, very tall people can sometimes be intimidating, and so giants are often portrayed as threats, including being violent and savage. Um, and since larger people need to eat more, Giants are often portrayed as being ravenous, needing large quantities of food to sustain themselves and causing a problem for regular people who have their food and livestock taken by the giants that need to eat. There's also a stereotype of a big dumb brute in contrast to small, clever, nimble people, so giants are sometimes portrayed as stupid. Um, that's especially so in stories involving humans and giants fighting. 
the giants are so big and physically intimidating that if you're going to fight them, you either need God's help to take care of a giant like David had, or you need to be smart and nimble to evade his physical force and defeat him. However, there also are stories of giants being kind and friendly, and in some stories they take human wives and their children grow up normal. Is Goliath the only giant in the Bible? No, in fact, the earliest mention of giants in the Bible is way back in Genesis 6, uh, just before the account of the flood, where we read, When man began to multiply on the face of the ground, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were fair, and they took to wife such of them as they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, but his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men that were of old, the men of renown. Here we have uh, three key groups of people mentioned in the text, the sons of God, the daughters of men, and the Nephilim. The relationship among these three groups isn't 100% clear, but it appears that the Nephilim are the children of the sons of God and the daughters of men. We talked about the Nephilim back in episode 87, so you can go back and listen to that for fuller treatment. You sometimes hear that the word Nephilim means fallen ones, but this is quite problematic because it would break the rules of Hebrew grammar. The Hebrew verb nafal does mean fall, but if you want to convert this verb into a noun and say fallen one, you need to do it according to certain rules. And as the biblical scholar Michael Heiser points out, by the ordinary rules of Hebrew, you'd convert the verb nafal to the noun nephulim or nophilim, not nephilim, which is what we find in the Masoretic text of the Hebrew Bible. Consequently, he and other scholars have suggested that nephilim isn't based on the Hebrew verb nafal. Instead, it's based on the Aramaic word nafilah, which means giants. And that's suggested by Genesis's statement that the Nephilim were the mighty men that were of old, the men of renown, because giants would be mighty and they would become renowned for their prodigious size and strength. Also, giants is the way that the translators of the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, understood the term in this passage. When they translate Genesis 6, they translate Nephilim as gigantes, which, as we've said, is the Greek word for giants. The Septuagint translators did the same thing in Numbers 13, which is where Moses has sent spies into the Promised Land to scope it out, and when they get back, they give a bad report and say, All the people that we saw in the land are men of great stature. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. Now, the spies are at least partially lying or at least exaggerating about this. It certainly wasn't true that all the inhabitants of Canaan were of unusual size. But notice that the context here is people of unusual height. They say that they saw the Nephilim, to whom they seemed like grasshoppers. So the Nephilim were notably taller than they were. 
Well, in the Septuagint Greek Old Testament, the translators once again rendered Nephilim as gigantes. So we have good reason to regard Nephilim not as based on the Hebrew root nafal, but on the Aramaic root nafilah and as meaning giants. Let's go back to Genesis 6 for a moment. It says that before the flood, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when sons of God came into daughters of men and they bore children to them. What does this mean? Scholars uh, debate this, but it looks like the sons of God mated with the daughters of men twice, once before the flood and then again afterwards. That's why it says they were on the earth in those days and afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of men. And both times it looks like uh, that they bore them children of unusual height. So even though all of the original Nephilim would have been wiped out by the flood, there was a later generation of them after the flood due to a new breeding of the sons of God with the daughters of men. So who are the sons of God supposed to be that they would have unusually tall children? That's a very controversial subject among scholars. Uh, some sources in the ancient world identify them as angelic beings who mated with human beings, uh, with women. But people immediately ask how it would be possible for an angel to mate with a human, given that angels don't have bodies. So other theories have been proposed, but that's a different subject than we're exploring today. Uh, today, we're focusing on the children, not their parents, so we'll be sticking with the giants. And you can go back and listen to episode 87 for a fuller discussion of who the sons of God might be. One of the things number th Numbers 13 mentioned was that the Nephilim were descendants of Anak. Who was Anak? We don't really know. Um, he's mentioned eight times in the Bible, and all of the references are early between Numbers and Judges. He apparently was an early Canaanite patriarch. Uh, the people descended from Anak are known as the Anakim, as you would expect. And he apparently was a very tall person. In fact, the name Anak is a trait name. In Hebrew, Anak means long-necked, which would suggest an unusually tall or giant person. This was also true of his descendants. The Luxem Bible Dictionary says this about the Anakim. They were the descendants of Anak, an unusually tall people that inhabited Canaan before the Israelite conquest. The Anakim, like the Nephilim and the Rephaim, were known for their height. They are particularly associated with the city of Hebron. While they are primarily associated with Hebron, in one passage, it is noted that they occupied a larger territory. Joshua cut off the Anakim from Hebron, from Debir, from Enab, and from all the hill country of Israel. Caleb is also noted for driving out the Anakim from Hebron. Following the conquest, some were left in the Philistine cities of Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. So the Anakim were an unusually tall people who were associated with certain places in Palestine, including Gath, which was the city that Goliath came from. So apparently he was one of the descendants of Anak. The passage you just read also mentions another people known as the Rephaim. Who are they? The Rephaim are a third group besides the Nephilim and the Anakim, 
And they're rather mysterious. Uh, there are a number of unanswered questions about the Rephaim. However, at least some of the Rephaim were a Canaanite people that lived in the promised land before the Israelites did. And at least some of them were larger than normal people were at the time. This is the case, for example, with a gentleman named Og, king of Bashan. Moses and the people of Israel conquer his territory in Numbers 21, and Og does not survive the battle. Later, Deuteronomy reports the incident, and the text includes this observation. Only Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Behold, his bedstead was a bedstead of iron. Is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? Nine cubits was its length, and four cubits its breadth, according to the common cubit. So Og was descended from the Rephaim, but he appears to have been their last known descendant at the time, or at least the last prominent one. He was the endling of their line. There's also an issue with the translation of this verse. Many scholars believe that bedstead of iron isn't the correct translation. Instead, the Hebrew term here for bedstead, eres, can be translated couch, and it's used for a resting place. Consequently, many scholars have understood this to be a reference not to his bed or even his couch, but his sarcophagus, the place where he was laid to his eternal rest. And the term here translated iron, barzel, um, has often been thought to be a reference to igneous, to the igneous rock basalt. Uh, in the Tyndale Old Testament commentary on Deuteronomy, J.A. Thompson writes, On his death, he was buried in a massive sarcophagus, literally bedstead or resting place, made of basalt called iron here because of its color. Similar large sarcophagi have been found in Phoenicia, those of Ahiram and Eshmunzar. According to the record here, the sarcophagus could be seen in Rabbah Amon, the modern Amman, at the time Deuteronomy was committed to writing. Its dimensions are given as 9 cubits by 4 cubits, that is, 13 or 14 feet by 6 feet, measured by the common cubit, literally cubit of a man. However, that doesn't mean that Og was 13 or 14 feet tall. People's sarcophagi are always bigger than they are, just like a modern coffin is longer than the person that's laid inside it. And great men sometimes had very large, impressive sarcophagi to show how important they were, even though they didn't completely fill them. Why are the Rephaim somewhat mysterious? In part, because the word Rephaim gets used in more than one way in the Old Testament. For example, it's sometimes used for the shades or ghosts of people in the underworld. But it's also used for more than one group of people living on Earth. Earlier, we mentioned the Anakim, and sometimes they're also called the Rephaim. In Deuteronomy 2, there's a note about the land of Moab that says, The Emim formerly lived there, a people great and many, and tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they are also known as Rephaim, but the Moabites call them Emim. The same chapter also says this about the location. That also is known as a land of Rephaim. Rephaim formerly lived there, but the Ammonites called them Zamzumim, a people great and many, 
and tall as the Anakim. The first of these passages tells us that Moab used to be inhabited by a people called the Amim, and that they were very tall, as tall as the Anakim, and that both the Amim and the Anakim are also called the Rephaim. And if you're wondering about all these eems, that's that's a Hebrew plural ending. So like an individual member of the Anakim would be an Anaki, but you get a bunch of them together and they're the Anakim. It's kind of like an American versus Americans. Um, the second passage says that the Rephaim used to live in Moab, and they were as tall as the Anakim. Also, there's a group of people with a, reputa- with a reputation for being as tall as the Amorites in another group. In the book of Amos, chapter 2, God is recounting what he's done to help the Israelites, and he says, I destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and who was as strong as the oaks. So the Amorites also were tall and physically impressive. We thus have several different groups, the Amim, the Anakim, the Amorites, and the Rephaim, and they're not always clearly distinguished from each other. Sometimes they all get called Rephaim. So Rephaim is an ambiguous term that can refer to multiple groups, and it looks like anybody who was taller than normal might be referred to as one of the Rephaim. Incidentally, the first century AD, Jewish historian Josephus also comments on this period in Israel's history when they were first moving into the Promised Land, and he writes, There yet survived the race of the giants. In the size of their bodies and appearance, they were unlike other people. They were astonishing to see and terrible to hear of. Even now their bones, which are unlike those that have come to our knowledge, are displayed. So Josephus indicates that there were extra-large bones being displayed in his own day that were held to be the bones of these extra-large people. Let's talk about giants in other cultures besides Israel. How widespread are reports of them? Extremely widespread. They're reported in cultures all over Europe, in North and South America, in India, in Australia, in lots of places. And how big are they reported to get? What's the biggest giant you know of? The Jain religion of India has a very interesting cosmology in which the world goes through cycles over very long periods of time, and the characteristics of humanity change as the cycles progress. In Jainism, our current age, during our current age, people can grow to be six feet tall and live up to 130 years. But after our age will be another age in which people only reach two feet tall and live only 16 to 20 years. Then, as future ages come, the people will start getting taller again until, in the best of all ages, people will be six miles tall and live for fantastically long periods of time before they start to shrink as the cycle starts all over again. Now, six miles is pretty tall, but that's not the biggest human-looking giant I know about. That one comes from Norse mythology, and his name is Immer. According to the Poetic Edda, which is one of our two main sources of Norse mythology, Immer was so big that after he died, Out of Immer's flesh was fashioned the earth, and the ocean out of his blood, 
of his bones, the hills, of his hair, the trees, of his skull, the heavens high. Midgard, the gods from his eyebrows made, and set for the sons of men, and out of his brain the baleful clouds they made to move on high. So basically, the gods made the entire human world, the planet Earth, out of Immer's body, and that's big. Now, so far, we've been discussing giants from the remote past, including giants from mythology. But have there been groups of giants in the real world in historical times? Not giants as large as some of the ones we've been discussing, but a famous case was a group known as the Potsdam Giants from what is now Germany. These were a military regiment that formed in 1675. It was founded by King Frederick William I of Prussia. He founded them while he was still a prince, and they lasted for 130 years until 1806 when they were disbanded. To be a member of the Potsdam Giants, you had to be at least six feet, two inches tall, which is tall even for today, and it certainly was unusually tall back then because people are taller in the 21st century due to better nutrition. The official name for the unit was the Potsdamer Riesengarde, uh, which means the giant guard of Potsdam. Uh, but the ordinary people nicknamed them the Langekerle, or Longfellows. The Potsdam giants were a special favorite of King Frederick William, and Wikipedia summarizes, The king trained and drilled his own regiment every day. He liked to paint their portraits from memory. He tried to show them to foreign visitors and dignitaries to impress them. At times, he would try to cheer himself up by ordering them to march before him, even if he was in his sickbed. This procession, which included the entire regiment, was led by their mascot, a bear. Of course, it was difficult to get soldiers who were six feet two inches tall, so the king recruited from other countries. In fact, the sultan of the Ottoman Empire and Tsar Peter the Great of Russia both sent him soldiers to be members of the Potsdam Giants so that they could encourage friendly relations with Prussia. And did that help build good relations between the two countries? It did. Uh, after Peter the Great sent giants from Russia, King Frederick William was so pleased that he gave the Tsar a famous artistic achievement known as the Amber Room. The Amber Room was a gorgeous chamber that was lavishly decorated with amber panels, gold leaf, and mirrors. It originally was in the Berlin City Palace, and after it was given to the Tsar, it was moved to the St. Catherine Palace in the Royals family residence in St. Petersburg. The Amber Room was so impressive that it was referred to as the eighth wonder of the world, and during World War II, Adolf Hitler decided to gift it back to himself. So he had uh, Nazi troops sent to steal it and bring it back to Germany, though it mysteriously vanished before the end of the war, and we may have a future episode of Mysterious World looking at the mystery of the Amber Room. Fortunately, there is a reconstruction of the Amber Room that you can visit today. So King Frederick William was really impressed with the giant guards that Peter the Great sent him, and he gifted them the Amber Room as a result. The king also wanted to keep a stock of giants for the regiment for the future, and so he did something that may not have been attempted before in human history. What was that? Ooh, the the idea of selectively breeding humans to have certain traits goes back to the Greek philosopher Plato. 
In his dialogue, The Republic, Plato advocated state-controlled breeding to promote desirable characteristics. Uh, He wanted to breed people like horse breeds. But King Frederick William tried to put the plan into action with the Potsdam Giants. He tried pairing off guardsmen with exceptionally tall women in hopes of getting exceptionally tall children. Now, that's always an iffy plan, because if you pair off two exceptional people, their children are not guaranteed to be equally exceptional. Instead, there's a phenomenon known as regression to the mean, like we talked about in last week's episode on the Rainmaker Charles Hatfield. With regression to the mean, after you have an exceptional case, things to go back, things tend to go back towards the mean or average situation. So if you have two exceptionally tall parents or two exceptionally short parents or two exceptionally athletic parents, their children are likely to be less exceptional and more average than they are. They may still be above average, but not as exceptional as their parents. Yet, the King's Selective Breeding Program with the Potsdam Giants had enough success that it's even mentioned in Charles Darwin's book, The Origin of Species. He writes, No race or body of men has been so completely subjugated by other men that certain individuals have been preserved and thus unconsciously selected from being in some way more useful to their masters. Nor have certain male and female individuals been intentionally picked out and matched, except in the well-known case of the Prussian grenadiers. And in this case, man obeyed, as might have been expected, the law of methodical selection. For it is asserted that many tall men were reared in the villages inhabited by the grenadiers with their tall wives. So, at least there are reports that the king's breeding experiment met with some success, no matter how morally dicey it may have been. Before we turn to the theories about giants and the faith and reason perspectives, let's bring our discussion fully up to date. What is, who is the tallest man alive today, and who is the tallest man ever to have been documented? According to the Guinness Book of World Records, the tallest man alive today is named Sultan Kosin. He's a farmer from Turkey. He was born on December 10th, 1982, so he's 40 years old, and he's just under 8 foot 3 inches tall. However, he's not the tallest man on record. That would be Robert Wadlow. Wadlow was born in Alton, Illinois in 1918, and he lived until 1940 when he passed away at the age of 22. He was over 8 feet 11 inches tall, so less than an inch short of 9 feet, and he towered above the people around him. He was known as the Alton Giant or the Giant of Illinois. He was the tallest person for whom we have modern records, and he died unnaturally young due to, due to an infection. The evidence suggests that he was still growing at the time of his death, so who knows how tall he would have eventually been. According to Wikipedia, His coffin measured 10 feet 9 inches long by 2 feet 8 inches wide by 2 feet 6 inches deep and weighed over 1,000 pounds and was carried by 12 pallbearers and 8 assistants. He was buried at Oakwood Cemetery in Upper Alton, Madison County, Illinois. So Robert Wadlow is the tallest man on record, uh, the tallest for whom we have good modern records, but there could have been even larger men in the past. 
And before we get to that, we want to stop and take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Greg, Andrew S., Sharon Z., Ben D., and Dustin J. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at AaronV.com. A-A-R-O-N-V.com. Making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the Catechism of the Catholic Church. By Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. Jimmy, what theories are there about giants? What do we need to consider from the faith and reason perspectives? From the faith perspective, uh, we should consider how well the accounts of giants in the Bible fit with the size of people who we've been able to document today. And from the reason perspective, we should consider topics like why people have legends of giants, what the science behind giants is, and how big humans can actually get. All right, what can we say about giants from the faith perspective? How do the accounts of biblical giants compare to the giant humans we've been able to document today? Are they in line with each other or are the biblical giants fantastically large? Well, the giants in the Bible are certainly more realistic in size than some of the ones from folklore. I mean, none of the biblical giants had an entire planet built out of their bodies like in Norse mythology, and none of them were six miles tall like in Jainism. There is some later Jewish folklore that gives giants startlingly large proportions, but that's not what we find in the Bible. Really, there are only two giants in the Bible for whom we have an indication of their height, Og and Goliath. One of the difficulties we face is that their size is indicated only using ancient measurements, and ancient measurements can be quite tricky, but I'll try to keep it simple. In the ancient world, they frequently didn't have standardized rulers to measure things with, so they measured them in terms of how big they were compared to your body, because you've always got your body with you, so you can compare the size of things to the size of body parts, like your finger, your hand, and your forearm. Uh, Metrology is the study of measurements, and in in biblical metrology, a finger width A finger is the width of one of your fingers, which is a bit less than an inch. A hand is uh, the width of four fingers, or your hand without the thumb, which is about three inches. A span was the distance between the end of your thumb and the end of your little finger if you spread your fingers out as far as possible. And a cubit, taken from the Latin term cubitum, which means elbow or forearm, is the length uh, from your elbow to the tip of your longest or middle finger. You often hear cubits estimated as being about 18 inches long or a foot and a half, but isn't there a problem in that people's cubits are actually different sizes? Yeah. uh, For example, men are larger than women statistically, so men's cubits are longer than women's cubits. Uh, That doesn't affect our calculations, though, because in the ancient Near East, it was the men who did the construction work, and so they were the ones who built things, and it was the male cubit that was the standard unit of measure. 
There's a more significant problem uh, in that men come in different heights, and that affects the lengths of their cubits. Goliath's forearm was undoubtedly longer than David's forearm, for example. So what we really need to do is determine the length of the cubit of a person of average height in Israel around 1000 BC. You can't just use the modern estimate of a cubit because people are taller now than they were in the ancient world, in part due to better nutrition. Also, people vary in height from one culture to another for genetic reasons, like pygmies are genetically shorter than Watusis. Fortunately, archaeology has allowed us to dig up the skeletons of ancient Israelites so we can make a good estimate of how tall they were. And it turns out that the average adult male Israelite was a little less than five and a half feet tall. So let's call that five foot five inches or 65 inches total. From that, we can estimate how long their cubits were. And the common estimate is about 17 and a half inches. As a cross check on that, I decided to measure my own cubit. I'm six feet tall, so I'm, say, seven inches taller than the average Israelite man, and my cubit is 18 and a half inches long, or about an inch longer than theirs. So 17 and a half inches for a standard Israelite cubit sounds right to me. Then let's look at Og and Goliath. Who do you want to consider first? Let's look at Og. Um, according to Deuteronomy, his bed or sarcophagus was nine cubits long. That would work out to 157 and a half inches or 13 feet, one and a half inches. That gives us an upper boundary, but it doesn't tell us how tall he actually was for four reasons. First, whether you understand this as a bed or a sarcophagus, it's undoubtedly longer than he was. Uh, people don't like their legs sticking off their beds, so beds are longer than the people who use them, and sarcophagi similarly need to contain the entire body, meaning the body is less long. Further, in the ancient world, if you had a granite sarcophagus, you couldn't cut the granite super thin, so its walls needed to be several inches thick, like the sarcophagi we find in Egypt. That means that you'd need to take several inches off both the top and the bottom for just the thickness of the granite. Second, uh, they often put a coffin inside a sarcophagus in the ancient Near East. That's what they did with Egyptian kings, for example. You put the body in a wooden coffin that's sometimes shaped like a human being, and then you put the coffin, and sometimes you put it in another coffin, and then another coffin, and then you put the final biggest coffin inside the granite sarcophagus. But that's what they did with King Tut, for example. Um, if the people of Bashan did the same thing with their monarchs, then you'd need to take off additional space for the thickness of the coffin or multiple coffins, again, at the top and the bottom. Third, they didn't necessarily fit the coffin exactly to you or to the sarcophagus um, that you put the coffin in. They may have left some space so that you would fit comfortably in your coffin and then your coffin would fit comfortably inside the sarcophagus. This is like modern coffins, which are always longer than the bodies they contain, so there's extra headspace at the top and extra foot space at the bottom. Fourth and finally, they did things to make royalty look really impressive in the ancient world. Og's coffin was on public display 
when Deuteronomy was written. So it it wasn't hidden away in a tomb where nobody could see it. It was a public monument. And that suggests they would make it deliberately impressive. And that would suggest that it was deliberately bigger than Og was to make him seem even more impressive in death and to show you what an impressive ruler he must have been when he was alive. So what happens when you take all these factors into consideration? It means that he was definitely less than 13 feet tall between the thickness of the sarcophagus, possible space between the sarcophagus and one or more coffins, the thickness of the coffin, the headspace between the top of the coffin and the top of his head, and the fact you need to double all those measurements to allow the same things to happen at his feet at the bottom of the coffin. Um, and the fact that they likely made the sarcophagus extra large to make it an impressive public monument. That could easily knock at least a couple of feet off his height and maybe more. And then there's the fact that nine cubits is a round number. The ancients often rounded up to any any part of a unit to the next whole number. So really, he may have just been over, a little bit over the coffin. The sarcophagus may have just been a little bit over eight cubits, and they rounded it up to nine. The bottom line is, I don't think we can say exactly how tall Og was. Um, it was definitely less than 13 feet, and he was tall, but it wouldn't surprise me if he was around nine feet tall, which was the same basic height as Robert Wadlow. Maybe even less if they deliberately exaggerated his sarcophagus size to make him more impressive. If we can't be sure about Og, what about Goliath? For him, we have a direct and more exact measurement of his height. Yeah, according to the Masoretic text of First Samuel, Goliath was six cubits and one span. The Masoretic text is the edition of the Hebrew Bible that was preserved by the Masoretes, who were uh, Jewish scribes in the Middle Ages. With a 17 and a half inch cubit, six cubits would work out to 105 inches, and my span is eight and a half inches, so I'll reduce that to eight for an ancient Israelite, and that would give us a total of 113 inches, or nine foot five, which is about half a foot taller than Richard Wadlow was at the time of his death. That's not unreasonable, but there's a problem because the Masoretic text isn't the only one we have of 1 Samuel. We also have the Greek Septuagint version, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are in Hebrew and Aramaic, and Josephus. And each of those represents an independent textual tradition. How tall does the Septuagint say Goliath was? Four cubits and a span, which would work out to a total of 78 inches or six feet, six inches tall. And the Hebrew of the Dead Sea Scrolls also says he was four cubits in a span. And Josephus also says he was four cubits in a span. So the Masoretic Hebrew text is an outlier here with its six cubits in a span. The other three textual traditions agree, all of them, that he was four cubits in a span or six foot six. So that's the height that the evidence points towards for Goliath, given that we have three textual traditions against just one. Six foot six doesn't sound like a giant. 
Not today, but the average Israelite man was five foot five. Uh, Goliath then would have been 13 inches or more than a foot taller than the average Israelite. And since David is described as a young man at this point, perhaps meaning not a not yet fully grown teenager, it's been estimated that his height may have only been five foot two inches, which would mean that Goliath would be 16 inches taller than David or almost a full cubit. Furthermore, um, we could bear in mind that the text of 1 Samuel never calls Goliath a giant. It just gives his height in cubits and doesn't describe him as a giant. So that's a word people today apply to Goliath, not the text of 1 Samuel. And we should be misled by what the word giant means in English. We tend to think of a giant as someone who's fantastically, even impossibly tall. But to the ancient Israelites, terms like Anakim and Rephaim, neither of which are applied to Goliath because he was a Philistine, just mean someone unusually tall, not someone fantastically or impossibly tall. So for five foot five Israelites, someone who was six foot tall or better could count. We thus shouldn't think of biblical so-called giants in our terms, but in terms of what the Israelites would have considered tall. It thus appears that the biblical giants are in line with the heights of tall people today, including very tall ones. Now, what can we say about giants from the reason perspective? Why do people have legends of giants all over the world? When it comes to giants that are really fantastically large, I, I think there are several factors. One is that there are unusually tall people all over the world. There's always someone who's above average, like in Lake Wobegon. And that naturally gets people's imaginations working. You start wondering, well, how tall could a person really get? And that leads people to imagine fantastically tall giants. Another contributing factor is that there are natural geological formations around the world that look like they're built by humans. A famous example is Giant's Causeway in Ireland. A causeway is a raised path or road, often a paved one, and Giant's Causeway looks like that. It's actually a volcanic formation, but when the lava came out of the volcano, it as it cooled, it formed 40,000 basalt columns. These columns look like prisms, uh, most of which are hexagonal, so they look like hexagonal paving stones from the top, and it thus looks like a paved road that was built for a person of enormous size. And so the legend arose that the formation was a causeway built by a giant to use as a raised road. What if your area doesn't have artificial-looking structures like Giant's Causeway? Can normal-looking geological structures also give rise to legends of giants? Yeah, um, even if you don't have something that looks artificial, like Giant's Causeway, lots of places have hills and mountains, and so legends arose that they were either constructed by giants or that they were made out of the bodies of giants. Then there are big, out-of-place stones. In many parts of the world, you'll find enormous boulders without other similar rocks around them. They're just sitting out in a field or something, like the Hitching Stone in Yorkshire, England, which weighs more than 1,000 tons, or 2 million pounds. But it's just sitting out in a field with nothing but dirt around it. 
in, well, and grass, of course. Now, in geology, rocks like this are known as glacial erratics. In Latin, the word errare, from which we get erratic, means to wander. And so a glacial erratic is a stone that was caused to wander by glaciers. The scientific explanation for them is that they were carried from their original location to their current location by glaciers during one of the ice ages. And when the glaciers melted, it left the giant stones behind. But what are you to make of this if you're living before the scientific revolution and you don't know about ice ages? How are you to explain why there's a giant immovable rock sitting out in your field? Well, humans sometimes throw rocks at each other when they're fighting, but no human could move a giant stone like this, so maybe giants threw the stones at each other, and that explains why they're out of place and just sitting in your field. At least, this is what the legend that developed in medieval England was. What about structures that actually were built by humans, like stone circles and other megalithic sites that were built by our ancestors? Could some of these have given rise to legends of giants? Absolutely. Um, for example, there is the famous uh, monument Stonehenge in Wilshire County, uh, England. And we will be talking about Stonehenge in a future episode. The tall or taller standing stones at Stonehenge um, are around 13 feet tall. And if you're living in medieval England before modern construction techniques, it could be at least a little difficult to imagine how ordinary humans could move stones like that around and set them up. So in Arthurian legend, the story arose that Stonehenge was originally located in Ireland, but that it was disassembled and brought to England by Merlin, who used giants to help set the stones back in place. So yes, large structures built by humans can also become associated with giants in folklore. What about extra-large bones that people have found? People have been unearthing gigantic bones all through history, as we've mentioned in past episodes, and we'll definitely have future episodes devoted to the subject. Petrified giant bones, meaning bones that have turned to stone, have come from the dinosaurs. But there are also fossilized bones, a fossil being something that's more than 10,000 years old, whether it's petrified or not. And so there are fossils that come from large animals or megafauna that used to exist in many parts of the world, some of which coexisted with early man, like woolly mammoths. So people have been finding giant bones all throughout history, and telling what species a bone came from is a delicate art. In the past, there weren't experts in paleontology and human anatomy, and thus many bones that actually came from other species might have been mistaken for human bones. You know, a rib from one species can look a lot like a giant human rib. A femur from one species can look a lot like a giant human femur. So it's not always obvious uh, what, what or whether a bone came from a giant human or from something else. Since we can't examine the bones that the Jewish historian Josephus mentions being exhibited in his day, I can't tell you whether they were human bones or bones from dinosaurs or megafauna. 
So they may well have just not been human bones, but that's what people took them for. In any event, the regular discovery of giant human-looking bones throughout history has also contributed to the legends of giant humans. There seem to be multiple reasons why legends of giant humans could have originated. But let's look at giant humans who we know to have existed, like Robert Wadlow, who died at almost nine feet tall. What's responsible for people like him? Humans grow to different heights because of nature and nurture, which is to say because of their genetics or nature and factors in their life, including nutrition or nurture. But human, humans grow to abnormal pathological heights due to a medical condition known as gigantism. Uh, this is related to another medical condition known as acromegaly. The name acromegaly comes from Greek roots that mean large extremities. What gigantism and acromegaly have in common is that they are both disorders that are due to the excessive production of a hormone known as human growth hormone, or HGH. What differentiates them is when the abnormal release of HGH occurs. And to explain that, we need to talk about bones for a second. In our arms and legs, we have bones with knobby rounded ends. The knobby rounded ends are called the bones epiphysis, which is Greek for on top of growth. The epiphysis is the part of the bone that grows when we are maturing towards adulthood. Specifically, there is a plate made out of cartilage on the end of our on the ends of our epiphyses which is known as the epiphyseal plate and it's this plate where the growth occurs but as we get older the cartilage in the epiphyseal plate eventually ossifies or turns to bone and the growth stops when this happens the epiphyseal plate is said to have fused and this normally happens at some time between the ages of 14 and 17. And that's when people typically reach their full height, though they still have maturing to do. That brings us to the difference between gigantism and acromegaly. Gigantism occurs when a person starts making too much human growth hormone before the epiphyseal plate fuses. So since the plates haven't yet turned to bones, they can still get longer, and the person grows to gigantic height, like seven to nine feet tall. But if the abnormal release of HGH starts after the epiphyseal plates have fused, then the bones can't grow longer and the person won't grow in height. Instead, his extremities, like his forehead, jaw, and nose, get bigger. He thus ends up with, with enlarged extremities, or acromegaly. What causes gigantism and acromegaly? The immediate cause is the excess growth factor, um, and that's usually caused by a kind of benign tumor known as an adenoma on the pituitary gland in your brain. Now, this is a benign tumor, or adenoma, so it's not cancer, it's not malignant. Uh, but it causes the pituitary to release too much human growth hormone, and that results in either gigantism or acromegaly, depending on your age. As to why the adenoma forms on your pituitary, there are various causes. Sometimes there is a genetic reason. 
In particular, mutations on the aryl hydrocarbon receptor interacting protein gene, or the AIP gene, can be responsible. So this is a condition that can run in families. But in other cases, there's no genetic factor. And I should point out that you can end up with both gigantism and acromegaly. If you develop an adenoma on your pituitary when you're a child, it may cause the pituitary to keep pumping out human growth factor even after you've reached your full gigantic adult height. For example, a person with both conditions was the Frenchman André-René Rousimoff, better known by his stage name, André the Giant. He became uh, famous first as a professional wrestler, but he also became an actor, and he's best remembered for his portrayal of Fezzik the Giant in the 1987 movie The Princess Bride. He had gigantism as a child and grew to be seven feet four inches tall, but his pituitary kept going, and so he developed acromegaly as an adult. And that all gave him wrestling abilities that some might describe as inconceivable. Anybody want a peanut? (laughs) So I love that movie. Earlier described gigantism as involving abnormal pathological height. What's pathological about it? You may have heard a criticism of 1950s B-movies about giant bugs, that no bug could actually grow to giant size because its weight would crush it. Well, that's true of humans, too. The bigger you get, the more strain it puts on your system. And that's true whether you're growing taller, as with gigantism, or growing in other ways, as with acromegaly or weight gain. Um, As a result, both conditions put strain on your system. Uh, Complications of acromegaly include type 2 diabetes, sleep apnea, high blood pressure, heart problems, osteoarthritis, and spinal cord compression and fractures. Complications of gigantism include weakness, headache, stroke, fevers, memory loss, and back pain. And if they're not treated, both conditions will shorten your lifespan. The death rate for both conditions is two to three times normal, and acromegaly will, on average, knock 10 years off your lifespan. Andre the Giant, for example, died in 1993 at the age of 46. Fortunately, there are ways of treating both conditions today, and although some of the treatments are controversial, people with these conditions can live to normal ages. If gigantism causes health problems like this, wouldn't that interfere with a person's ability to be a warrior? Depending on how tall they get, they certainly can. Uh, People who are eight or nine feet tall often have to use canes and braces to get around. They might be able to intimidate people just by their height, though. And not everybody has effects that are that extreme. Andre the Giant, for example, was very strong and able to get around and work successfully as a professional wrestler. King uh, Frederick William's Potsdam Giants also could function as soldiers. If gigantism is sometimes caused by genetic factors and can run in families, could that explain the different groups of giants that the Israelites encountered in the Promised Land? It could. In fact, uh, we'll have a link to an article in the Ulster Medical Journal that looks at the biblical evidence and speculates on this possibility. In the article, the authors attempt to reconstruct Goliath's family tree. And I must say that I don't think they've done it correctly. I, I don't think their version is accurate. 
But they have identified figures of abnormal size from 2 Samuel and from the parallel passages in 1 Chronicles, and they were likely related to each other and Goliath in some way, even if not in the exact way that the authors of the piece speculate. So the fundamental conclusions of the piece about the types of genetic causes running in the family or families still holds water. What conclusions do they reach about the genetics? They suggest that Goliath and his relatives had mutations on the AIP gene that we referred to earlier, and that these mutations caused them to have pituitary adenomas that caused the production of excessive human growth hormone in childhood, resulting in their gigantism. They also comment on how the complications of gigantism could have hampered them in battle. For example, concerning Goliath, they write, Goliath was killed by David who threw a stone at his forehead. This gives further evidence that he suffered from pituitary gland dysfunction. A pituitary tumor pressing on his optic chiasm and consequent visual disturbance due to pressure on his optic nerve would have made it difficult for him to see the stone in his lateral vision. Pituitary giants look impressive in terms of stature, but may not have speed and agility to match their perceived strength. David, having agility, particularly having declined the heavy set of armor that was offered to him, and being skilled at slingshots, may have found a way around the fearsome-looking giant by firing a slingshot from the side of the battlefield. Goliath himself had a shield-bearer precede him, possibly to indicate to Goliath the direction of the approaching foe. They also note that in 2 Samuel 21, verses 20 and 21, they describe another man from Gath, so same town as Goliath, who was descended from the giants and thus likely a relative of Goliath. And this man had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, or a total of 24 digits instead of the usual 20. The condition of having extra digits is known as polydactyly, which is Greek for many fingers, and it also has genetic causes. In particular, there's a form of polydactyly that is associated with a gene known as BBS1. No, that's not something from Star Wars. And BBS1 is located on chromosome 11 in humans. Chromosome 11 is also where the AIP gene responsible for many cases of gigantism is found. So the, maybe this broader family had genetic mutations on chromosome 11 that was responsible both for their gigantism and this man's polydactyly. The authors also speculate that mutations like this are why giants are referred to in the Bible as existing both before and after the flood. The giants from Gath were present after the flood. One possible answer to the often raised question of why the Nephilim giants, present before the flood, were not eradicated by it, could be that new mutations in the AIP gene or other genes caused new families of giants to appear. There's no evidence in the Bible to suggest that the Nephilim, Rephaim, or Anakim were directly related, but they may have had some relations and intertwined lineage. If Goliath was the son of Rapha, he is likely to be descended from the Rephaim. But being brought up in Gath, an ancient stronghold of the Anakim, could suggest he may also have had some Anakim relatives, making his champion status 
even more significant in the ancient world. In episode 87 on the Nephilim, we talked about the arguments that the original giants before the flood were produced as a result of angelic beings, and that angelic beings were, again, responsible for the giants after the flood, um, whether they mated with human women or otherwise, you know, uh, used their angelic abilities to cause mutations on Gene 11. Either way, whether there was an angelic cause or a purely natural one for these giants, it it could have been mutations on chromosome 11 that were the biological cause of the gigantism. Have archaeologists found any bones of giants when excavating in the Holy Land? There have been reports of that, but I'm not aware of any that have been verified. There, There have been fakes. However, the authors of the Ulster Medical Journal article state, Families of giants have been described in the medical literature, but this may be one of the oldest and most famous examples to be documented. Perusal of the archaeological literature of that period gives evidence of giants being excavated, but numerous fakes exist. Technology now exists to extract DNA from giant skeletons, and if any new excavations in the Middle East unearth a skeleton suggestive of Goliath or of Og or similar biblical giants, more proof may be obtained by careful DNA analysis, and it may be possible in the future to delineate the exact relations between different giant lineages in the Bible. So we may at some point get more information from archaeology. A final question. In light of all this, how big can humans actually get? Well, there are differences between different populations of humans and some people and peoples are just taller than others. Apart from cases of pathological gigantism, the countries with the tallest populations tend to be found in Europe. Uh, in Norway, Montenegro, Denmark, and Serbia, the average height is around 72 inches or 6 feet. In Germany, Croatia, the Czech Republic, Slovenia, and Luxembourg, the average height is around 71 inches or 5 foot 11. Uh, And those numbers are average for both sexes. Um, But since men are on average taller than women, the men in those countries would be a little over six feet and the women a little under six feet. When we take gigantism into account, though, we know people can get up to at least nine feet tall. Uh, Robert Wadlow was less than an inch shy of nine feet tall at the time of his death, and he was still growing. So the tallest human ever likely was over nine feet. With better nutrition, people have been growing taller in the developed world in recent years. Years, Could we have even taller people in the future? Maybe, but it's not particularly likely. Uh, in the first place, nutrition can only do so much. There's still a genetic basis to height. And there's a phenomenon known, as we said, as regression to the mean that sets a limit on how extreme a person's characteristics can get. The way human reproduction works, we get a random selection of our parents' genes, and if you get genes that make you especially tall or smart or long-lived, then your children, your offspring, will get a random selection of your and your spouse's genes, and their characteristics will tend to be closer to the mean or average of the overall population. In other words, they're likely to regress or go back to the mean or average value. This is true even, as we said, when both spouses are exceptional. So super tall parents are likely to have less tall children on average. 
Super smart parents are likely to have children who aren't as intelligent as they are, and super long-lived parents aren't as likely to are likely to have children who are more average in their lifespan. And the good news is the reverse of all those is also true. If you're super short or super not smart or super short-lived, your kids are likely to again be more average. Yeah, all my kids are going to be taller than I am. <laughs> so could you use genetic engineering to increase human height? Potentially, yes. But even setting aside the moral issues that surround genetic engineering, you're running a risk. Humans just aren't built to be over a certain size. And as they get bigger, the problems they experience increase. In fact, there is a possible negative correlation between height and lifespan. More research is needed, but if that's true, then if you're shorter, you'll live a bit longer on average. I noticed this a few years ago. Now, this is just anecdotal evidence, but I noticed this a few years ago when I became the caller for a contradance group whose members were elderly. It was a senior citizens group. And I noticed at a certain point that every single one of the surviving members was short. At six feet tall, I towered over all of them. But these were the people that had lived the longest in the group. So even if you engineered everybody's AIP genes to give them gigantism, the children would inherit all the problems that come along with gigantism and fixing those problems on the genetic level so that people could grow big without the complications is something we're not close to doing. However, there is one way we might develop a population of significantly taller human beings and that's moving off Earth, like in Larry Niven's known space series or in The Expanse. If people grow up in a low-gravity environment like our sister planet the Moon or Mars or the asteroid belt or on a space station, they might grow taller because Earth-like gravity wouldn't be constraining their height, and the low-gravity environment wouldn't put as much strain on their system, so they might be able to grow super tall without the problems associated with this. On the other hand, uh, there may be problems with bringing a baby to term in a low-gravity environment, or it might produce developmental problems like brittle bones and atrophied muscles. So this would be risky. Uh, also, the super-tall space people would be adjusted to a low-gravity environment, meaning that they couldn't stay on Earth for long periods of time without the higher gravity putting extra strain on their system, so they might need to largely live off-planet. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on giants? Giants are fascinating. Uh, mythology and folklore have some truly astonishing cases. The uh, giants of the Bible, however, are realistic and fall within the range of what humans can actually grow to. In fact, the evidence is that Goliath wasn't as tall as the Masoretic text suggests. Instead, the balance of the evidence points to him being just six feet, six inches tall, the height at which he would have still towered over the ancient Israelites. Legends of giants are likely produced by a combination of factors, including human imagination based on the existence of tall people, natural structures that look artificial, out-of-place boulders that need an explanation for how they got there, and bones from dinosaurs and megafauna that were mistaken for human bones. But gigantism is a real disorder. 
It can allow people to reach at least nine feet in height. Uh, it's caused by excessive production of human growth hormone in childhood, such as caused by a benign tumor on the pituitary gland, and it has genetic causes, uh, particularly the AIP gene on chromosome 11. And it may have been re- the gene responsible for some of the giants that the Israelites encountered. So, Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the listeners and viewers? We'll have links to uh, Giants, Gigantism, Acromegaly, uh, Passage from the Poetic Edda that we read, also information on the Potsdam Giants and the Amber Room, Regression to the Mean, Sultan Kosin, the current uh, tallest man, Robert Wadlow, the uh, the most recent uh, tallest documented man, um, also the Journal of Anthropology article on the Cubit, a history and measurement commentary that talks about cubits, Michael Heiser's article on the height of Goliath, the Giant's Causeway, the Hitching Stone, Glacial Erratics, Stonehenge, Woolly Mammoth, Andre the Giant, the Ulster Medical Journal article on hereditary gigantism, the biblical Goliath and his brothers, and information about average heights in different countries and the relationship between height and lifespan. Excellent. So that's it from us this time. What are your theories about giants? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page sending an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world, visiting the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord, or calling our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. And I want to say a special word of thanks to uh, Oasis Studio 7 for the video and animation work on this episode. They do really great work, and you can check it out by going to youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken, where I have my YouTube uh, videos, uh, both the Mysterious World ones and other videos that I do myself. Uh, I am trying to grow my channel. We're over 30,000 now, and we're working on getting to 40,000. So I'd really appreciate it if you would uh, subscribe and hit the bell notification so that you always get a notification whether I release a new Mysterious World video or whether I release something else. Jimmy, what what are we going to be talking about next time? Next week, we're going back in time, and in a way people may not expect. Uh, We're going to be talking about a phenomenon known as time slips. And to introduce the subject, we're going to be talking about the most famous time slip of them all, the famous Versailles time slip that occurred in 1901. Stay tuned for that. Folks, be sure to share the podcast with your friends and write a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you can write reviews of podcasts to help us grow this community and reach more listeners. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at mysterious.fm slash 243. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. 
Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fairvento Law PLLC, now assisting clients with expungements and set-asides of Michigan convictions. To learn more, call 231-202-3321 or go to fearventolaw.com. F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O law.com. And by Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at delivercontacts.com. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, The Secrets of Doctor Who. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash Doctor Who.